Every time a bell rings, a geek gets his wings. Right here on this festive special episode of The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And by now you should have sated yourself silly on a Christmas dinner. You've eaten all that Christmas pudding, you are doused in eggnog, and you've sat and watched the Doctor Who Christmas special, well, you should have. it. We've gone forward in time to watch it, and it's great, but we're recording this just for the big day, which is a bit like going back to the future, Andy. It's yeah, it's a bit strange. It's uh, it's one of the, this is one of the weirder ones because this isn't going to be one of our normal shows. It's going to be a bit of a condensed, like just filler one, just because there's been two films of huge stocking importance. Stocking filler, Andy. I think you'll find stocking, stocking filler. filler. Uh, yeah, there's two films of huge importance that we felt that we couldn't wait until the new year to talk about because, well, they're, they're a bit too importantly big, not necessarily box office wise, but in the dominance of what's been discussed online over the past few months. Um, so we wanted to just do this little drop in before we properly return in the new year. Next week, we probably won't have much of a show. It might just be a cobbled together old episodes and I might throw in one or two of my bonus reviews. We just need time to relax and recharge before we uh, come back in the new year with our best of 2023 look back. Been thinking about the best of 2023 look back as well. Ooh, yeah, and I don't want to ask I don't want to ask all the listeners out there for their top five films of the year because I'm having a nightmare narrowing that down <laughs> myself. So what I was thinking is if we throw out a question, which will kind of be like a question of the week, but it's more like question of the year, which right. will be best laughs, best scares, biggest surprise, biggest disappointments, and the film of 2023. It doesn't have yeah, to be the fair. film of 2023. It doesn't have to be the film you love the most. It could be the film that you think represents 2023 the most. Sounds good to me. There you go. That's our social challenge. It's not really a challenge, is it? It's more of no, a it's... get you involved, pulling you Yeah on our side between part of the team yeah we, we will discuss what we think were the films that stood out when we come back in the new year for the year but it gives us something to talk around as well to see you know comedies might not make my top five this year but there was a few comedies that proper had me chuckling this year so I'd, it gives us a chance to mention those films that might have slipped under the radar well i can't wait i'm also working on our best tv of the year as well i think we should chuck that in just to make life more difficult for you Andy because I know you're struggling with, oh, your, with your top 10 list you're just going to destroy me there because there's been a lot of good TV this year <laughs> well for me there's been more good TV than there has been great movies I think I've, I've become more invested in TV this year more than ever um, on the subject of questions so we should we go through the handful of responses that we've had to our recent question of the week which was very Christmas themed and so yes. um, I don't think we're going to get much more answers from this point onwards yeah go for it what have we got our question last week was, what is that go-to festive film that you do every year? Festive film or TV special or something yes. that isn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be to do with Christmas, but it's something that you you are looking forward to sitting and watching Christmas Day again. So we we got a handful of responses on, on this. Not a huge amount because I think everyone's Everybody's busy Christmas shopping. by this point. <laughs> uh, but we did get like some of the regulars. So over on Facebook, Stephen Young, Krampus. He's going to be watching on DVD for Christmas Day. Totally get that. He's also going to throw in Violent Night, which he's rented, and Nightmare Before Christmas, and It's a Wonderful Life on Blu-ray. So he's got a pretty packed day. He just about had enough time to have his Christmas dinner, by the sounds of it. Um, <laughs> and he's also got Christmas with the Joker episode from Batman Animated Series. Thanks to all that on Netflix. Uh, Lee Leary, not very Christmassy. But he just got Event Horizon on 4K and he won't get a chance to watch it before then. So that's his Christmas Day watch this year. What a festive treat that is. <laughs> I mean, that's just got me thinking like at the moment at the cinemas, there's Society of the Snow, which is the, the true story of the Uruguayan rugby team who crashed into the Andes that was previously done in the 90s with Ethan Hawke as Alive. And I thought that, that that's the most festive film that you can get because it's set in snow and it, it's having friends around for dinner. Um <laughs> You've been waiting to do that gaggle all since that film got announced, haven't you? I can tell. Oh, yes. Um, Helen Blair, it's going to be different for us this year as the little one doesn't nap anymore. So through the day will be some kids' films, might do after Christmas. May watch Home Alone 2 and Miracle on 34th Street in the evening, depending on what they watch over the next few days. Patricia Meakin, my good old mumsy, no plans. Maybe watch something when dinner is over. She's going to let my sister and her kids choose what to watch. My mum doesn't particularly have the festive traditions. 
you can kind of see where I get it from. Yes. Oh, humbug and all that. Yeah, it's not a humbug. It's just like, I, I don't see the point in watching mediocrity. We both only got like those select few things that we watch on the run-up. Uh, Lindsay's story. We watch a lot of Christmas films every year, but Staples are Scrooge, Christmas Vacation and The Grinch. And we always watch League of Gentlemen Christmas Special. Absolutely love that one. The one that's kind of the old tales of terror. Yes. Uh, Blackadder's Christmas Carol is a good one too. But we always watch a Christmas story around Christmas Eve. And then on Boxing Day, we start on the Christmas Christmas films. (laughs) Yeah, if if you like a Christmas story, Lee's definitely going to be your friend when you finally meet him. But we've got to say, some of them released this year have been terrible. A Genie and Your Christmas or Mine too. I'll never get that time back. Mm, yeah, I mean, like I said, Genie wasn't terrible. It just wasn't good. And a, a Your Christmas or Mine too has no appeal to me because I've never seen the first one and it just looks like everything I hate about festive films. Owen Cooper also added, in terms of specials, my all-time favourite is the League of Gentlemen Christmas special. But for films, I have to say that The Grinch is the best. The amount of energy Jim Carrey puts into that film still has me howling at the screen. Over on Mastodon, Cynthia Herb. I know very little about Doctor Who, but I plan to watch the Christmas special. Now, that's good. The The new specials seem to be captivating the attention of people who don't really yeah, watch I, Doctor Who. I, I did some radio just before, before the big day, and everybody kind of mentioned as much when we're talking about what to watch over the festive period. And, and Doctor Who crept up for a couple of presenters who, who aren't normally fans, but certainly were in to watch it for the first time. Mm. It's interesting that a new doctor is doing what a new doctor should generally do anyway and catch a new audience at the same time. Extinction Studios on Mastodon. Scrooge is my favourite Christmas movie, but this year I'm going to watch Muppet Christmas Carol. Good choices. Both of them are good choices. And Aussie at Mastodon World. My family has a tradition of watching something most or all of us haven't seen. And this year they selected The Big Short. So it's not a festive film, but it's a great film. festive, but a good film. And that was the handful of responses that we got. Like I say, I think a lot of people are burnt out from being asked these, these kind of questions yeah, yeah, uh, by everyone online. Everyone's been discussing what they're going to be watching at Christmas. But it's good to see some non-festive picks within there alongside the festive tradition ones. What, what's your uh, go-to, Andy? What's your festive go-tos? Christmas Eve, It's a Wonderful Life and yeah. Anna and the Apocalypse. And then on Christmas Day, at some point, I will watch <laughs> Harold and Kumar's Very 3D Christmas. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, that was your Christmas present in advance. But obviously, I will be. I am excited to watch Doctor Who. Yes, me too. Christmas Day hasn't felt the same without Doctor Who for the past few years because they've been the yeah, New Year. Yeah, it went to New Year, didn't it? Didn't feel as, didn't feel as special. I've, uh, I've got on my always go-to list. I think I'm a bit burnt out with A Christmas Story this year. I've, I've seen it all the years times. previous. Yeah, so I think <laughs> I'm, I'm ready for something different. I will never miss, I will always put on a, a Charlie Brown Christmas because yeah. I just love it. I, it's 20-odd minutes of sheer Christmas joy. I like a lot of the old TV shows. So things mm. like The Porridge Christmas Special, which is uh, uh, for those who are far younger than I am, or uh, Hello, Utah was a TV sitcom set in a prison from the 70s, and it is genius if you can find it anywhere. Same with The Likely Lads. Uh, any Morecambe and Wise Christmas show, I'm always in for because they just still, nearly 50 years on, make me giggle immensely. Britbox is your place to watch for yep. all those old festive picks, uh, variety shows. That's when they the knew how to do a Christmas special. Because I've, I've been browsing through some of them, and I might throw a few of them into the list. I mean, Bread's, Bread's Christmas episode. Never got Bread. There. Never one of those shows I never got. It kind of was relatable, being from Liverpool. So, yeah, I can uh, see that. that. We used to watch as a family. So I might pick through and see which ones of them. But a Porridge Christmas special is a very good shout, and I know for definite that that was on Box to watch. So I might that. put that onto my Christmas Day one, which seems weird because this is going out after Christmas Day. So people are like, you're going to put it on for what, next year? You no. can still watch it. Yeah, we're, we're back to the future. It's all timey-wimey. <laughs> Wibbly-wobbly, very, very apt. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's the roundup of the answers that we've had. Thank you very much to everyone this year for your answers to all our questions over the year. We're, we're racking our brains to come up with questions for over next year to keep this engagement going because we love... Literally 10 seconds before we announce this segment, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like I said before... It's a get thinking and get responding on the social channels once I post out and I'll keep reposting it. What we're after for when we return in the new year, when we do our wrap up of 2023, 
Best laughs, best scares, biggest surprise, biggest disappointment, and the film that defines 2023 for you. So as Andy said, this is a very short, special Christmas episode. Uh, And rather than give you a full show, we're going to give you a a compact Christmas cracker surprise. You pull both ends, you'll get a hat, and you'll get us. So what have we got in our special Christmas cracker? Well, we're going to be giving you a little bit of news. We're going to be reviewing Aquaman Lost Kingdom. We're going to tell you our thoughts on Rebel Moon Part 1. We've got a deep dive into Bad Santa. But before that, here's a couple of very impactful news stories. So as we said, we're not going to do a full news roundup. But these two stories, we think, well, they they do carry some impact for the industry, uh, for certain studios uh, that we think we should be talking about. Yes. We've been talking about it on and off as the news has been breaking over this year. But over this past week, the trial, which was against Jonathan Majors, brought to him because of the allegations of his battery and harassment of his ex-partner, Grace Jabari, finally came to a conclusion. And the Manhattan jury found Majors guilty of reckless assault in the third degree and harassment following a two-week trial which stemmed from the incident way back in March this all started um, between him and Jabari. The two other charges which were aggravated and like it, intentional assault were found not guilty. It was believed by the jury that any injuries that were caused to Jabari were accidental and caused by the situation. So that's why it's third degree. But it still means that the actor is potentially going to be sentenced to up to a year on this charge. If he gets a year, give him three months, he'll be out if he if he keeps his nose clean. But a year in prison is nothing compared to having the swiftest rise to stardom and fall from grace that has pretty much ended his career on the spot. And the biggest news of this is the impact that this has on Marvel Studios. Well, it was always hanging around, wasn't it? It's been discussed now since this allegation was first mentioned that how would Jonathan Majors now fit in to the Marvel Universe? As you know, he's been playing Kang, played it in Quantumania, he played him in Loki, but it seems now that Marvel have made the decision to part ways with the actor. Yes, uh, it came within hours of his verdict being brought to the public that Disney and Marvel announced that he would no longer be playing the part of Kang within the MCU going forwards. Um, at the same time, his the, the actor's promoters and some of his uh, managerial team have dropped him. He's basically right. cast out into the wilderness. I mean, and this is a real shame because of how how quickly over the past two years he rose to absolute prominence with every role that he did, he impressed. He's such a great talent. But the guilty verdict has come along and whether he appeals it or not, whether, you know, if he does appeal and it gets overturned, it's going to make no difference now. He's now tainted product. It'll be like, we've we've used this phrase quite a few times that you're basically put into actor jail and then a few years later, you can come back out and start building your career back up again. And maybe we might see him reprise at some point further down the line, but he isn't going to be playing Kang going forwards. Over the past few months, there's been a lot of discussion about what's going to happen with Kang because he was positioned as quite a key figure. He was going to be the new Thanos, basically, the, the, the big bad over all of these arcs. We know that the studio still wanted to move ahead with the Avengers Kang Di- Dynasty, but over the past month, it kind of got renamed just to Avengers 5, which made people go, they're getting ready for something here. They're getting ready for a change. Uh, Marvel has previously recast roles in the pa- in the past over creative and financial disputes. The biggest ones are Terence Howard and Edward Norton, who were replaced by Don Cheadle and Mark Ruffalo, respectively. Uh, But this marks the first one to do with legal troubles. And the first one where a character has specifically been mentioned to be represented by the same person in every incarnation of them. So whether they can get away with recasting, because loads of people are saying, well, it's multiverse, they can look differently. No, but it's been made clear that Kang is the same in every every part of the multiverse. Now, I've already looked at it and just thought, and spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen Loki season two and seen the end of it, the end of Loki season two could be seen as a way to eradicate Kang from the timeline. Because by the end of that, Loki is holding the branches of time together, having more or less taken the job 
that He Who Remains was doing and keeping everything together. So potentially, Kang doesn't exist anymore because of Loki. So that gives them an easy out that they can just reference the ending of Loki to move things on without Kang in the background. Loads of speculation online as to whether or not Marvel are going to fast-track Doom to come in as the new big bad, which will mean a fast-tracking for the Fantastic Four. Nothing is confirmed at this point in time. Everything out there is speculation, but it does mean that they either have to think, can we get away with recasting? I mean, Yaha Abdul-Mateen is sat right there and would, would be a great replacement choice. I know that John Boyega was asked whether he'd want to do it, and he just responded on Twitter with a gif of Donkey from Shrek going, no. He's been burned by the studio system before. He's very keen to avoid getting burned by a studio system again. There's speculation, there's rumours, there's wild suggestions out there. Nothing's confirmed at this point in time. And Marvel, as we've said before, with only one film coming out next year, which is Deadpool 3, they've got time to actually think about where they're going with this and how they can make it, how they can make it fluidly work into the new direction that they're going to have to take the creatives in. So Marvel would have had plenty of time to consider all the options. They're not just going to make a snap decision. The decision to to lose majors was uh, already in in the pipeline, should we say. There were probably multiple outcomes of what they were going to do. There's a big industry, a lot of lawyers, a lot of people working on films that don't actually get involved with the production of films. So decisions were made probably some time ago, not just this week. So we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, as Andy's just said, there's been plenty of speculation of recasting, reworking the timeline. We'll just have to wait and see because we're now into new territory. What we also know is that he's also been dropped from uh, an adaptation of a Walter Mosley novel. Yeah, The Man in My Basement, Otis Redding biopic, and also the ad campaigns that he's been filming for the Texas Rangers. Yeah, did the US Army, didn't he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, it's, it's, a, it's a shame. It's a shame for an actor to throw his life away like that. But it's also a shame that he committed those crimes. And um, we hope that he repents and uh, at some point can move on with his life as, as should his partner as well. The other big news which happened this week is it's speculative, but it seems to be that discussions are in place for, well, this will be quite impactful on the film industry as a whole a merger between Warner's Discovery and Paramount. Yes. Warner's Discovery itself is already a merged company that has been building and building over the past few years. And this, if Warner's and Paramount do merge together, this is akin to when Disney bought Fox, that it's creating a huge powerhouse. And a lot of people are speculating that this is a result of the streaming era, that yeah. a lot of companies are having to combine together in order to survive through it. It's not confirmed at this point in time, but it is known that CEO David Zaslav has met with Paramount Global CEO Bob Backish last Tuesday to discuss what how the companies can complement each other, which does include the possibility of an actual merger between the two. What would this would mean for the business is that we basically will have two huge juggernauts and then Universal and Sony sat on the sidelines picking up the scraps because Fox and Disney together is one powerhouse. Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery is another huge powerhouse. It will probably mean a lot more when it comes to the streaming side of it. Because if, if they work how Disney and Fox have done it, the Fox is still kind of its own studio. It's just under the umbrella of Disney. Yeah. Disney don't interfere in Fox Searchlight Productions. That's still allowed to go ahead. So they'll probably run a separate studio just under one umbrella. But it's on the streaming side of it that that's where we'll start to see the difference because both have their own streaming services, Max in the US for Warner Discovery and Paramount Plus worldwide. Those two, two services will inevitably combine at some point, which will bring it all together. We've said multiple times that there's too many streaming services and at some point some of them are going to have to fold. And that's the way that they're going to fold. They're going to fold into each other. Yeah, we, we speculated on that for some time, Andy, since the whole beginning after lockdown of the of, of the streaming world that we now live in, um, you know, there's only so many, it's only so much time, there's only so much money. Netflix, yeah. no matter for all of its problems, is still the biggest streaming they supplier dominate. across the world and has the biggest audience and the biggest amount of subscribers and is is still a mega force out there it does it does beg the question though that with less and less companies does that affect 
uh, creativity at some point because it's all about now the bottom dollar. That's where it's more and more important that people recognise the studios and uh, distributors such as A24. Focus on them because they're the creative outputs, even to a degree, Universal working with Blumhouse. I know that Blumhouse films have got a bit too repetitive and tropish, but they still allow people to work with low budgets who are coming from hardly any back catalogue. So those studio outputs are still important. So Universal are going to become more and more important as a distributor of product that isn't necessarily big blockbuster. Two big studio powerhouses. Like we said, Disney with Fox, they still allow Fox Searchlight to be its own thing. And that's a creative studio. That's a studio that lets people make, make things that they want to make on a lower budget and generally deliver quite well. We know that Warner Brothers Discovery currently has a value around 29 billion US dollars. And Paramount is currently worth about $10 billion. So it's a potential that Warners might just outright buy Paramount. Um, but at this point in time, it's just discussions. And it's just, as Zaslav said, it's the company is in a way, in a position now to allocate more capital towards growth opportunities. And this is the way of them hopefully growing. What impact it's going to have overall is completely unclear. It'll be early next year before we get any further news on this, and it might not actually ultimately result in any deals going through. This is just the early days of it, but it's hugely important early days that could really impact on the industry as a whole going forwards. And we'll keep you posted on all updates on every aspect of news to do with movies and TV right here on The Film File. And that, folks, that's your news summary for this week. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, and you're listening to our post-festive special. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. We're going to take you back to 2004. We're going to take you back to Terry Zweikoff's Bad Santa. When it came to holiday spirit, Willie's never had it. It's not real. Well, it was real. I got sick and all the hair fell out. How'd you get sick? I loved a woman that wasn't clean. Mrs. Santa? No, it was her sister. Oh, no. Where's your sleigh? It's in the shop. Where's the reindeer? I stable them. Where's the stable? Next to the shop. How do they sleep? Are you messing with me? There's something about the guy that makes me uneasy. Now, a hopeless kid. Wedgie. And a Santa nobody liked. Are teaching each other a lesson. Is that your underwear? Part of it. Where the hell's the rest of it? Actually, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Put your dukes up. You gotta learn to stand up for yourself. Oh no. Scream at him. Ah! He is pathetic. Scream! Be loud! Ah! You don't hit in the What's wrong with you? He's just a kid. I told you I didn't want to do this, huh? Good. The naughtiest guy in town just might discover. He's a really sweet kid, isn't he? Yeah, I guess so. How to be nice. Good night, Santa. Good night, Mrs. Santa's sister. Santa! Billy Bob Thornton, Bernie Mac, Tony Cox, Bad Santa. I beat up some kids today, but it's for a purpose. It made me feel good about myself. You need many years of therapy. Directed by Terry Zweigoff. Starring Billy Bob Thornton, this is a story of a Santa, well, who doesn't go around spreading festive cheer. No. Billy Bob Thornton is Willie. He's a swindler who dresses up as a shopping mall Santa. And along with his elf partner, Marcus, they go on to rob a mall. But the plans go astray when the thief befriends an eight-year-old boy. This is one of those films when it came out that I think kind of did well through word of mouth because everyone kind of went have you seen bad santa um you should because mm. it's not that appropriate and I, and I think that was the that was the huge draw to it this is a christmas black comedy crime drama that still manages to be a story about family coming from director teddy zweigoff who'd previously given us ghost world and crumb uh, the like well-respected documentary in Ghost World, which was just a, a awesome, awesome slice of life. Film we should talk about at some point. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be put on the list. Bad Santa, 
like you say, he captured people's attention because it was it was foul mouthed. It was uh, it was quite shocking. But when you get to watch it, it's interesting that it's actually quite charming at its heart as well. Because the focus on Billy Bob Thornton, who is on excellent form in this, and it, right from the start, he's a drunken mess, alcoholic mess, being the worst Santa ever. Got a huge dislike for kids. He's just in the department store so they can scope it out, check for cameras, work out how they're going to do the heist, which they do over the Christmas period to go in, steal what they can. And he's instantly unlikable but hilariously so you're finding him funny but you don't like him but then over the film as he befriends this young child who is snot nosed when you first appear like first find him and seems very stalkerish and santa obsessed asking billy bob thornton's character multiple questions about santa that you would never think of asking santa because he's so determined to know everything about this person who he believes is the real santa and billy bob thornton's character despite the fact that he hates having to dress as santa still sticks to the idea that he is santa even though he's foul-mouthed answering and being very offhand he's still keeping the kid's imagination alive that he is the real santa and through circumstance of him needing somewhere to crash and he ends up crashing in the kid's house because father's behind bars and mother's long deceased and there's just his weird um, gran who resides there who seems to be oblivious to everything going on he starts to grow a fondness for the child and that's where the film really starts to work because at that point the whole arc of someone's redemption and someone wanting to be a better person and wanting to bring some magic and joy starts to play into the film. It becomes less foul-mouthed and smutty. It still has enough through to the end, but it becomes more about seeing this, this person changing his behaviour. And that, for me, is the spirit of Christmas. It's that thing that no matter how grumpy you are, you can still connect with people. You can still like turn yourself around. I've not been back to revisit this film since it first came out. And I think that's because the sequel kind of tainted it for me. I, I avoided that like the plague because it's a film that, let's be honest, didn't need a sequel. Not uh, at this all. This film built its reputation up because it was... It was such a, a, a different take on a Christmas story. As I said, it's a, it's the blackest of black comedies, but it was a, an absolutely unnecessary sequel and should be forgotten by by everyone uh, because it it's not even worth shouldn't even be worth mentioning because everything that the first film does so well that makes you care about this redemption story is basically dumped for the in the in the sequel. Billy Bob Thornton in this, like I've said, he's magnificent. And over the period of the film, not only does he start to want to help this kid, uh, Thurman Merman, best name of a child in a film ever, <laughs> uh, who's played marvellously by the young Brett Kelly, he realises the loneliness that that kid's got. He wants to basically make up for his lack of childhood yes. by helping this child get a really good life and becomes a father figure and best friend to this kid. It's marvellous how, how easy it is to care for Brett Kelly's Thurman. Because from that initial introduction where he's weird, within 10 minutes, you're starting to think, oh, this poor kid, what a life. He's getting bullied by kids at school. He hasn't got a family except for his grandma, who's a bit senile and played marvellously in an uncredited support role by the magnificent Clovis Leachman. Yes. Um, she only has a few lines of dialogue where every single one of them had me chuckling because she just gets up in the middle of any random thing going on and is like, would anybody like some cookies? And just spotters off screen. She's like, oh, she's marvellous. It's just so easy to care for Thurman. And you want Billy Bob Thornton to become a better person. When he rips open, when he's in a drunken mess, he rips open it like Thurman's advent calendar. And then the next morning, as he's sobering up, he looks at it and you see the look of, oh, what have I done? on his face, and then he tries to repair it by putting satellite, random random corn sweets and things like that in there just because he wants to keep the magic alive for this child because he was never that child. He never had a chance to be a child so innocent and, you know, looking at the best in the world. That's what works in this film yeah. because you connect with both Billy Bob Thornton's sardonic negativity but also Thurman Merman's childlike innocence and you want the two to work together beautifully by the end of this film you just got a lump in your throat there's also like you know billy bob thornton who's just basically being a womanizer as well finds one woman who he wants to stay with i was just going to mention how great the cast are i mean you've got tony cox uh you mentioned brett kelly the great john ritter who the film's yeah. dedicated to in his last role uh bernie mike but 
uh, Lauren Graham, who is who plays against type. She's uh, well known on TV for playing being a, a loving mom, kind of playing uh, playing a, a totally against uh, against that type. Another another Fanta obsessive, but in a yeah, different way. <laughs> in a completely different way. I, I'm really trying to pick my words carefully. This is a family <laughs> show, after all, uh, and she's fantastic. Um, and and again adds depth to this film it's an interesting an interesting story uh, the coen brothers are executive producers on this film and had developed the concept for bad santa before eventually hiring uh the writing team of glenn Ficara and john recu and the coens told them that the story would center on an alcoholic bad santa who seeks uh redemption but they wanted it to be funny they wanted it to be like the bad news bears funny mm. The Coens jumped in, adding a bunch of crass jokes and a little bit of Coenness to it. When the script was finished, it was sent to Universal. Uh, it was seen as the foulest, disgusting, misogynistic, anti-Christmas, anti-children thing they could imagine. So it went to green. Uh, it, it got greenlit at Miramax instead, and, and proved to be a financial and critical success. Critics gave it really praising scores. It only cost about $24 million to make and made over 76. It was enough of a success and it deserves to be because it, it Zweigoff, who, like I said, with Ghost World, he really has a handle on showcasing broken characters in a very human way with charm and to get you to care about even the most, even the most obnoxiously awful of characters. And that's what works. Even Tony Cox, who is an absolute piece of work in this, you, he's just great throughout. Tony Cox was was on a rise at this time. He was popping up in so many films. Sadly, his career kind of stopped after the sequel to this, because the sequel to this, Bad Santa 2, which came 13 years later. Which is always a bad sign. They were initially wanting to do a sequel quicker because it was a success, but Zweigoff and his writing team couldn't see a reason why, because the whole story arc was done. There was no reason yeah. for it to be a bad Santa going forwards. And I've, I've re-watched Bad Santa 2 as well this week. You're a braver man than I. It was a struggle. Because Bad Santa 2 starts off, and we're straight back to square one, but all his redemptive arc was for nothing. It makes yeah. the whole lot of the first film seem pointless. And it just leans far too much into the crassness. The writers and the director for Bad Santa 2 clearly thought that what people loved about Bad Santa was just how crass and disgusting and over the top it was. And they've missed the fact that it's the underlying story arc heart that it had that kept people engaged with that for over 90 minutes. With the sequel, it's just, Willie's depressed now, his life's gone to hell after the end of the last film. Marcus enters his life again, while Thurman is still around as an adult, who now, rather than it just being a rather weird, obsessive kid, it now clearly is stating, oh, he's autistic, so let's mock autism. And it feels it feels abhorrently nasty. Where's the first film? The dark humour was just dark humour, but it was kind of like, okay, it's maybe pushing the boundaries, but it doesn't step over. This sequel feels at every point that it wants to push the boundaries and break them and just become distasteful rather than funny. It's more of the same, diminished returns. You can't shake the feeling by undoing the redemptive arc of that first film. This is just a misguided, very late cash-in on the previous film that diminished every character within it. There's no heart in the sequel. And I can see, after watching the sequel again, why I didn't go back to Bad Santa 1 to re-watch that until recently. Because it just made me... It made me hate the character. And I shouldn't be hating this character. You, you kind of should, at the start of Bad Santa 1, hate this character. But by the end of it, you realise that everyone could become better. But Bad Santa 2 basically goes, well, can they? Everyone was wasted. Absolutely pointless sequel. But that first film, if anyone's not seen it because they've always won, like thought, oh, crass comedies at Christmas, does it really work? It works so, so well. It, it certainly does. It is a, a perfect Christmas film. It's a film about redemption. Yes, it's misogynistic. Yes, it's it's foul in places. Yes, it, it's even disgusting in places. But you know what? That all adds to the charm. So, Andy, if anybody wants to, as a as a post Christmas treat, give themselves an extra little Christmas present, how can they find Bad Santa? Uh, both films are on Sky Movies at this point in time. I think they get removed off it at the end of the month. So you've probably got a week left by the time you hear this show. And now it's time for our special 
reviews. So two big films have landed, one on streaming, one at the cinema. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about is Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. I'm going to kill Aquaman, murder his family, and burn his kingdom to ash. I will avenge my father, even if I have to make a deal with the devil. I'm coming for you. We'll pick a fight. Fine. Flex your muscles. He must be stopped. If you lead, the Seven Kingdoms will follow. Sometimes not giving up is the most heroic thing you can do. And basically, it's over, folks. Fifteen films. Uh, a Snyder Cut, a couple of Marthas, and it's now done. The DCEU, as it's generally known, has come to an end in time to be rebooted again with James Gunn at the helm in 2025. Uh, and does it go out with a splash, or does it go out with the bubbles rising to the surface as someone gasped for breath? Sadly, it's the latter instead of the former. We have the return of James Wan directing Aquaman. We've got Jason Momoa back as Arthur Curry in what is a, a lackluster sequel. It does have its moments, but generally this is really drowning in the shallow end. So Black Manta discovers an ancient weapon and sets out to destroy Atlantis, you know, for reasons. Aquaman, Arthur Curry, struggling with being the ruler of the undersea world has to turn to his imprisoned half-brother Orm, played by Patrick Wilson, for help. And so what you've got is a mismatched buddy movie, some at times decent effects, but generally passable effects work, some unfunny gags and a script and a film that feels generally as though it's been cobbled together. Sounds fair, Andy? Yes. Now, we've spoken in the past about the first Aquaman film, that I had a huge amount of love for it. Lee, not so much. No, I, I never quite got it. I never quite enjoyed it. You know, one of the main reasons, I like Jason Momoa. I just don't see him as Aquaman. I, I think he was cast to be DCEU's Thor. Mm. Interestingly, he, he doesn't look like Aquaman. He's far too bulky for somebody who's a swimmer and should be, and should be lean. And I, and I think Patrick Wilson, looking at this film, would have made a much better... Looks more like uh, Aquaman. <laughs> yeah. I loved the first film. I loved it for it being a whole bunch of comic book ideas thrown it together. And it just it carried along in a very comic book way. It was fun. It flowed from start to finish. It seemed to have a natural progression, even though it was just being random with, like, this happens at this point. Why? Because we need an action scene. That's fine. I'm fine with that. I had a lot of fun with the first film. And by the time the first film got to him stepping out of the waterfall with the full costume on and the trident in his hand, I was like, ah, oh, I am sold on this character. But everything that I love that first film for, I hate this second film for. Because again, it's a mess of comic book ideas that are thrown together in a film that bounces from one place to another. But this one suffers as a result of the blatant troubled production that is visible on screen. I mean, there was reports from set of Jason Momoa was turning up inebriated on set on a few of the shoots. Heard's court case that resulted in various changes being made to the script in the editing stage. There's poor test screenings that resulted in changes and reshoots taking place. There was the constantly changing vision of the DCEU, which resulted in reshoots and chops and edits and changes. And the film basically shows all that in the screen because it's a absolute mess in particular there's a huge mid chunk of this film with an island where toxic waste basically is getting burned to destroy the ozone layer and destroy like the environment and on that island loads of creatures are mutating into giant insects and beasties and man-eating plants etc and that just feels like it was shoehorned in because they realized we've cut so much from this film there's not enough of a film left we need some action beats and they forced it in because we know that at one point Michael Keaton was supposed to be in this as yeah. Batman. Ben Affleck was supposed to be. We know Ben Affleck was supposed to be there. Yeah. We know that it was originally supposed to be coming out before The Flash, 
We know that then it got shifted to after the flash. It was supposed to have come out last year. We know that there's been constant changes. And now that that old DCU is going, they've had to chop loads. And you can tell because that midpoint thing doesn't make sense plot wise. Because the basic story is Black Manta at the start of the film finds the mysterious Seventh Kingdom, which had been lost for ages. And in there, he finds a, a great evil power from one of the first entities that ruled the Earth. And he manages to work out that if he frees him, he can get great power. Whilst that evil entity has tapped into Black Manta's brain and is taking control of him at the same time. And then they go off to do this thing on the island for no reason at all, because uh, we've not got enough story left after we've chopped everything else. And then it just goes back to the Seventh Kingdom at the end to do the, oh, what we need to do is spill out Atlantean blood to break the spell. It makes no sense where that island came from, except for the production issues left them with a big gaping hole in the centre act. Let's talk about some, some of the big gaping holes. Mira, as played by Amber Heard, gets about five lines throughout the entire film. I mean, there are scenes in which she's in where she gets to look pretty and do nothing else apart from look on uh, as dialogues taking place. To say that she is uh, the mother to uh, her and Arthur's child, she's never present. I kept going, where's Mira? Why is Arthur Curry playing Home Alone Dad? Um, and, and why isn't she in any of those those sequences? Now, we know there's controversy and we also heard that the lack of charisma between the two had sort of forced her to the sidelines. And uh, it certainly, certainly shows in it because it's almost embarrassing that when she turns up, she's not got a line of dialogue. She's very much present at the start of the film, but like you say, with not much lines. And then she kind of vanishes from the whole picture until about the midpoint, she suddenly springs back. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot she was in this. Yeah, she gets a bit poorly, doesn't she? But she gets better. Yeah, and even though she doesn't have much lines, she then seems to be heavily reinserted in the final act. And it's like, well, you, if you're going to keep her on the sidelines, you could have excised some of these, because now what you've created is a film that seems like a bait and switch. They've been making out on the trailers recently that she was going to have no presence, but she becomes present even if she's not talking. And it's like, oh, you're trying to trick us with this one because no one wants to see her on screen. And I didn't want to see her on screen, not because of the legal issues. I didn't want to see her on screen because she's terrible. She's yes. not a good actress at all. She's and not, no. she's got no chemistry with her co-star. And it's obvious in every moment that she's on screen. She's not you know great. who I felt sorry for? Nicole Kidman getting some of the worst dialogue yes. I've ever heard. Don't get me started on how Black Manta, who had popped up in the first film as like a side villain, like little diversion element, and then has a chance to actually have a story in this one. But it becomes someone else's story because he's possessed by a malevolent spirit. And it's like, oh, well, that's a waste of Black Manta because it's not really Black Manta. And also the fact that Black Manta between the first film and the second film has just been stirring at his broken suit and never fixing it for no reason at all. That makes no sense. <laughs> when he looks across, he's just like still broken. And it's like you're just thinking, why have you not repaired your suit yet? I don't know what's going on here. You've, you've managed to build a submarine, but you've not built a suit. What's going on? Or how in the final act, he suddenly knows the intricate details of Aquaman's personal life and that he's got a baby, even though only minutes beforehand, he was quite surprised that he was with Mira. You can see where the edits are. You can see where the problems were. And you can see the continuity issues that is created. On the plus side, I mean, I know I said that island section was pointless. That did give us some good bonding between Aquaman and yeah. his brother Orm, Patrick Wilson, which I think you ref said that it felt very Thor Dark World. It was that like taking the two Absolutely, enemies yeah. and having them bond. And that kind of worked. That's where the film has one bit of strength yeah. in the relationship I, 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 between the two brothers. Momo was charismatic and the kind of friend enemy banter works really well because Patrick Wilson is such a great screen presence that he, even in the most underwritten of roles, he can always do incredibly well. And that's the bit I enjoyed. That's the bit that lifted it out of the monotony because let's be honest, this is the reason that superhero films have dropped in popularity. This is exactly the evidence that you point at to go, why aren't people coming to see movies anymore that, that are about superheroes? This film is the reason because it's big, it's loud, it's brash. It's got some stunning visuals at times. It doesn't say anything. 
doesn't no. have anything doesn't mean anything the characters don't mean anything they they become to the point of which the entire reason when we started watching them that we wanted to invest in them they don't do anything they they aren't there for any other reason apart from to clobber uh, and, and therefore we don't care and it feels so artificial and i think one of the reasons that that people poked at quantumania was because it was all in this green screen world and therefore had no depth to it. This is exactly the same. I mean, James Wan does, at certain points, come to life. Some of the, the fight sequences are incredibly well shot and choreographed. Uh, it, it's visually colourful and stunning in some areas. It always has points of pure imaginative lunacy. Yes, a full-blown octopus sidekick, which actually worked. Um, Nicole Kidman riding a giant robot shark. As you said, the grasshoppers on the Skull Island sequence. It's empty. It's just colour and noise and, and has no depth to it, no meaning. We don't care. So for the end of the DCU, it goes out w with, a, with a whimper. Barely even a whimper. It's a shame because, like I say, I absolutely loved the first film. And I was still optimistic and hopeful that I'd get the same kind of buzz to some degree. But I went from like a five-star film on the first film to one and a half stars on this because I sat for the whole runtime just feeling let down, feeling underwhelmed. I mean, it didn't help that it leans far too much into the humour in the same way that Thor Love and Thunder did. This leans too much into the humour. Within the first few minutes, like, oh, do you, do you find hilarity in babies weeing on people? Oh, well, no. Oh, well, we'll do it again in a different way. Oh, no, I still don't like it. No, it's still not my sense of humour and you're not going not gonna to get me. So please stop having things weeing on the lead character so in the midpoints they have something weighing on the lead character again it's like oh would you just stop this already and the soundtrack that i mean i don't know if this is a result of the edits that like they couldn't get the score to work properly but do we really need a dun 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 noise every five seconds from the music score because i got so fed up of the dramatic dun 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 constantly playing Someone would just say like a line of dialogue. It'd be like saying, oh, I'm going to get a slice of toast. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it was that, that level of ridiculousness. Everything about this film just, it, it, I mean, we said last week that this felt like they were putting this out to die. There's been yes, no buzz yeah, around like it. it. There's been no publicity. And yeah, it's going to die. This is going to die. It's not doing well at the box office at the moment. I don't think it's going to do much. It's been critically slated. And even the public response has been very bad on it. And it's a disappointment. It's a shame they had a chance to go out on a bang with the DCU. They could have finished this film and kept in those cameos that they've ended up taking out as like a final farewell to everything. But instead, it's just a wet limp of a film. That's Aquaman, The Lost Kingdom, and now Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire. What do you think they want? We're gonna have to fight. We're searching for soldiers for a fight against the mother world. I could help you. For a small fee, obviously. I'm here to make you an offer. A chance at redemption. We are beyond redemption. What about revenge? It's a new age for the universe. Rebel Moon Part 1, A Child of Fire. We've been talking about this film for some time, Zack Snyder's own creation, uh, as he basically at Netflix is building his own universe. And what have we got? When her home planet is threatened by the cruel ruling empire, sorry, Imperium, ex-soldier Cora, played with enthusiasm by Sophia Butella, she searches for allies to help defend her home planet. So what we have here, and everybody knows the story that Zack Snyder originally pitched this as a Star Wars film, We've got a film that is rife with so many influences. We have The Dirty Dozen, The Magnificent Seven, Battle Beyond the Stars, Blade Runner, Gladiator, 
all playing in to this film to the point where when we should be looking forward to an original piece of science fiction because in the days of ip that you recognize this should feel fresh and different but feels as though everything has been cobbled together in this men on a mission movie where the main difference is that you just don't care you phoned me up literally about five minutes after I finished watching this uh, to say that you'd just seen Aquaman so we could <laughs> get ready to talk about these on the show. And I said to you on the phone that I've literally just finished watching Rebel Moon and I can't remember the name of any characters. That's how much of an impression this whole thing had on me. And given that it's essentially a whole film of just setup of characters for what is going to be the next film, there's no real plot within this it is just like here's another character that we're going to slowly introduce in slow motion there's nothing to this film except for the visuals even the the attempt to have like a big action set piece at the end just feels it just feels wanting and lacking it feels unnecessary it feels like this is a chopped down film because it is we already know going into this because snyder's been saying for months how he's made two versions of this film back to back and now he's been saying over the past week that the proper version of it is the extended version. And that's the one that that is almost a completely different film. And it just makes you wonder even more that why have they bothered to release this unfinished mess of ideas that are ripped off from everything else? There's even a dodgy cantina where they have to go to get a flight, find someone to take them off planet that has a mix of different aliens, including one that starts to aggravate them at the bar. And it's like, this is Star Wars. This is just taken straight from Star Wars, except it's done poorly. We were semi-excited for this. We've been excited and then, oh, trepidation over the past year for this because we wanted it to be good. We wanted it. We've got a lot of love for Battle Beyond the Stars. We've got a lot of love for Magnificent Seven. We've got a lot of love for Star Wars. And Zack Snyder's been saying that he's got a lot of love for those kind of things and they're his influences. But then when you watch this, it's like, well, you're not influenced by them. You're just wholesale stealing from them. Yeah. That's not influencing. You can see how it was pitched as a Star Wars film and you can understand watching this why it got turned down. You can also see why when he pitched the idea to Warners, they've turned it down because this is a bad film. This is a it mess. Is. Whether, the, whether the extended version is going to rectify a lot of the issues, I don't know, because the biggest issues in this are that this is a film that feels like it's drawn out, whilst at the same time it's being edited down to an unstructured mess of ideas. If you take all the slow-mo, I mean, his trademark slow-mo is embedded within this. If you take all that out, you could shave half an hour to 40 minutes out of this film <laughs> easily. But even those signature styles, the slow-mo, the, the colour grade, the lens flare, just sort of become overbearing. And, and don't yeah. add anything in to the general story. I mean, to give him his dues, when he does a great shot, he knows how to frame a shot. He's an, he yeah. is a fantastic visualist, and, and that's the winning with this. The film does have some scope and scale to it. The alien worlds are fantastically realised. The world building, I thought, was, I thought, was really well done. But that's what we got for basically mm. this first film is we've just got world building and, and Lucas managed to do this in five minutes and you knew exactly where you are. And I just don't think he's a great storyteller. The best piece of work that he's done for me is still Dawn of the Dead, which was yeah. lean, which was tight, which looked great and, and did something new and fresh with the genre. Uh, I, I thought Sophia Butella is a, a seriously underrated action star. I think she's great as Cora. I thought the voiceover by uh, Anthony Hopkins just, you could have had any actor come in to play that robot voice. Yeah. I didn't care about any characters. There's a thing towards the end where we're expected to care when one of the gang doesn't make it, but we've not had them on screen long enough to even yeah. understand who they are. So why are we... Why are we upset about them? This is where Zack Snyder has his issues. I mean, you've already said, like, he he's not a good storyteller. He's not good at characterizations. He's not good in tapping into the humanity and, of, and the essence of who someone is. So you end up not caring. Even the characters who've been on screen long periods of time in this film, you don't care about. You don't care one way or the other. There's nothing to them. They're all just archetypes and caricatures. 
and they are they just play simple bland character types there's no depth to it it's visually you know you've said that it looks great uh, moments and yeah i mean like i said the alien worlds are all beautifully realized i love the design of the ships and the technology i love the costume designs snyder is an impressive visualist but he needs someone else to write stories with him and he needs someone else to help edit because the editing on this is it, it, it just lets down any chance of curving story-wise it is just basically rogue one meets um, magnificent seven because let's be honest the whole thing is just a, a direct ripoff of Rogue One. There's moments with their lightsabers, I mean, uh, energy swords or whatever they're going to call them in this one, where you can see that he probably intended them to not, because in this, yeah, they are actual blades that then channel energy. It's not the light comes out of a stem. But there's moments in the editing that it looks like that wasn't intended to start with, because there's one fight in particular when the blade is thrust through someone who like who they've got pins next to them but doesn't go through the person behind and then when they put like move them onto the floor with the blade still in them it doesn't even go into the ground even though there's a blade there and it was like oh that's a bit that's a bit sloppy it's as though all the ideas got kind of like oh we can't make it too star wars quick let's change but then it we do edit. but then it becomes it becomes a dark star wars yeah and that's all it is isn't it i mean it's got a, a very earnest tone it's childlike or it's it's in places but then it's got i don't know i i thought it had a, a sort of an edge to it that i didn't like which i thought was a bit sexually sadistic in places yep uh, it had all the simplistic morality of a star wars film but then it had this sort of sort of nasty edge to it which i i found really unpleasant and i don't think the two match together because is this meant to be uh, an adult star wars or is it meant to be a, a new sci-fi franchise and I, I didn't quite get the, the, the tone throughout out the movie. We do know that we're going to be getting a second part in April of this. And this film does feel like, a, this feel, film feels like an opening act to a much better film. But whether that second part is actually any better remains to be seen yet. Um, we know that Snyder said that he's got plans for a whole series of films. And this is the start of a whole, like, a whole legacy. But I'm not convinced that we're going to see them stretch much further after that second film because we know that Netflix don't like getting negative backlash and this has been getting a lot of negativity from critics and anyone who's not a die-hard release the Snyder Cut fanboy and I think their streaming figures are going to drop on the second film significantly so I think we might see the plug get pulled on the Rebel Moon universe going forward. I mean, after all, remember how Army of the Dead was setting up a whole franchise? Yeah. What's happened with that? Where's that gone? It's almost like Netflix have gone, yeah, focus on this other thing that you're doing instead. I know that a certain fandom out there will shout about it's a masterpiece, and they already are. They're already saying this is a masterpiece. I've seen someone respond to someone who said that they didn't like it, saying, oh, when the extended version comes out, you'll change your opinion. It's like, I seem to remember that. Isn't that an echo? Yeah. So we have to wait for the extended version to retroactively decide that we liked this version that you're now admitting isn't actually good. They're all saying it's a masterpiece, but guaranteed when the extended version comes out, they will all, all say it's fixed the problems with the original version, even though they don't think there's a problem at this point in time. But those kind of fans will always be like that. They will always say it's the best film ever made. It's five out of five. It's fine to be a fan of something and not like everything to do with it. I'm a huge fan of Star Wars, but there's quite a lot of Star Wars that I don't like. I want Zack Snyder to do better. I think he's got the capability of doing better. His earlier works showed that he can do better, but he needs to be working with better people in order to get the best out of him. This is not good Snyder. So despite some great looking action sequences, some cool-looking designs, some interesting aliens. The first part of Rebel Moon really is a bit of a disjointed mess. But we'll leave that up to you to decide because you don't have to trust us. Watch it for yourself, and you can find it right now on Netflix. And as Andy said, part two comes in April. Andy, what's coming up over the next week? Not a great deal. At cinemas, Ferrari, Next Girl Wins, and The Boy in the Heaven. So three potentially great films to pad out the back end of the year and now tv and sky for streaming is the only place to be keeping an eye on because two films that i loved this year polite society and sizu both land over the next week uh, and that folks that really is us done for not only this week but for christmas and 
for the new year. Uh, thank you for joining us. You are our neat thing. And we don't do this show for ourselves. We do it for you. And it's always our pleasure to put it together and knowing that you guys are out there listening and enjoying the film file because it is a labour of love. Yes. Thank you very much for everyone who's engaged with us over the year, who's sent in answers to the questions, who's met us in public and shared their thoughts on films and got to know us as people. We're always happy to talk to any of you. And this year has been a year that we've kind of built on that kind of engagement with all you guys out there that we love doing this show. We love doing it to chat to each other, but we love doing it to share our thoughts with you and hear your thoughts back. So uh, here's to 2024 to come. Hope you all have a wonderful new year and don't get too drunk. So from me, have a fantastic new year. We'll see you soon. And from me, it's another farewell to 2023 from Lee. I hope you had a great Christmas. We'll see you soon. This is The Film File signing out on 2023.